Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, updates on Israel's war with Hamas. A 5,000-member migrant caravan begins walking toward the U.S.-Mexico border, while big city mayors of sanctuary cities press President Biden for $5 billion in aid. Israeli settlers in the West Bank risk opening another front in the war by attacking Palestinians. And Democrat squad member Rashida Tlaib escapes censure with the help of 23 Republicans. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody, on Facebook Live. If you're watching there this morning, we appreciate it very much. I'm there every morning, 7.30 to 8.30. And then, of course, the podcast, if you're listening, it's uh, whenever you choose, which is kind of the cool thing about podcasts. You're kind of large and in charge when it comes to when you like to listen to your favorite programs. And I certainly hope that this program is one of them. We want to begin today by thanking um, the, our sponsor today, Truth and Politics and Culture, is being brought to you by the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity have a proven track record of settling and trying cases in South Carolina. They have over 25 years of experience and knowledge that has helped thousands of people just like you. If you're looking for experienced and successful personal injury lawyers in South Carolina who will fight for you, go to McCraveyLaw.com. That's M-C-C-R-A-V-Y-Law.com and find out how the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm will exceed your expectations. They know South Carolina law and they know how to get results for you. You can call them today for a free consultation if you dial this number, 833-245-6565. That's 833-245-6565, or go to McCravey Law, M-C-C-R-A-V-Y Law.com. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm is ready to represent you. All right, we got a lot of things to talk about today. Um, One of the things is the temperature. Boy, it's cold this morning. It got down. I don't know if we made it to freezing last night. I I didn't check the overnight temperatures, but I know we were going to be close here in the upstate of South Carolina where I live. And we're supposed to have, uh, I think the high today is only going to be like 51. And then uh, temperatures are going to drop down low again tonight. So November is bringing a little bit of, of winter with it, uh, which is, it's, I mean, it was coming, right? I mean, I'm a summer guy. love the summer, love the heat, um, love to be outside. I just I've always have been more of a spring and summer guy um, than a fall and winter guy. But, um, hey, even I don't mind if it gets cold for a little while. I just don't want it to, you know, I wish I could control that. I, if, if I could just make the weather what it was that was good for me, of course, it wouldn't be good for everybody else, of course, if I did that. All right, a couple of things before we get to the big news stories of the day. Bob Knight, uh, one of the most legendary college basketball coaches of all time, died yesterday at the age of 83. He won three national championships, and he made four, uh, excuse me, five Final Four appearances all during his 29-year season tenure at Indiana. His first head coaching job was with Army in 1965. He took the Hoosiers job in 1971, where he stayed until 2000, 
and then he coached at Texas Tech from 2001 to 2008. This is the statement that was released by his family. It is with heavy hearts that we share that Coach Bob Knight passed away at his home in Bloomington, surrounded by his family. We are grateful for all the thoughts and prayers and appreciate the continued respect for our privacy as Coach requested a private family gathering, which is being honored. We will continue to celebrate his life and remember him today and forever as a beloved husband, father, coach, and friend. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1991. Uh, I was looking at his career. He, well, well, he's one of the top coaches in college basketball ever in terms of wins. He went 902 and three, to 371, 902 wins over his career, and that was the sixth most, most wins of any coach in Division I men's college um, basketball history. After he finished coaching, he was an analyst for ESPN for a few years from 2008 to 2015. He also coached the, um, let's see, what was the U.S. Olympic team, 1984. They won a gold medal in Los Angeles, and he was the coach. He was in the March Madness tournament 24 times in 29 years. That's just crazy, crazy successful stuff. Now, he was also very controversial. Um, he, in fact, he left the University of Indiana because of physical altercations with some of his players. He threw a chair across the, the uh, basketball court. He supposedly put his hands around the throat of one, of one of his players. And all of those things combined ended up getting him the boot at the University of Indiana where he was so successful. And the Hoosier faithful, most of them loved him. But he was volatile. Uh, he had a pretty nasty temper, and it got him in trouble sometimes. And so that's going to be part of his legacy. I mean, he was a great coach, no question. But, um, you know, you, you've got to keep control of yourself. I mean, this is self-control. I think about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, what are the fruits of the Holy Spirit in a person's life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and, of course, the last thing is self-control. Um, and without that, you end up being a, like Coach Knight. I mean, you can get yourself in volatile situations where you, you're not able to control your, the strongest reactions that you have, and obviously it can get you in trouble. All right, um, just a, another quick word from the world of sports because the World Series ended up last night, and it's going to be one of the least watched of all time, I think. But there's just not a lot of people who, you know, there was no L.A. Dodgers. There was no New York Yankees. There was, um, you know, no Boston Red Sox, no Atlanta Braves. It was not a, a big-name team that is, you know, marches through the regular season and ends up being the World Series champion. In fact, the Texas Rangers, who won the World Series last night and 4-1 to one over the Arizona Diamondbacks, I mean, they, they only they had 90 wins, I think. They had to scratch and claw, and, but they beat the Houston Astros. Um, they, they were able to make it to the World Series, so you, you've got to give them credit for that. Uh, 90 victories from April through September. Um, they stormed past. Now, in the playoffs, they did go past some powerhouse baseball teams um, that, to, to complete this, this win, uh, and they did it by winning an unprecedented 11 straight on the road, leaving the Tampa Bay Rays, Baltimore Oreos, 
and Houston Astros in their wake against the Diamondbacks. Um, the Rangers was, I mean, they got their $325 million dollars. Uh, from Seeger, who claimed the MVP honors for the second time after winning the award with the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2020. Uh, Rangers spared no expense to get to this point. Uh, at the same time, they signed Seeger and, and Simeon. They awarded $56 million to free agent pitcher John Gray, only increasing the hype around baseball's newest big spenders. It didn't work right away, but um, it, it certainly worked this year. And what's really interesting is that the Diamondbacks had a no-hitter going against the Rangers. I think it was all the way into the sixth inning. And then in the seventh inning, there was an RBI single. They piled on uh, four more runs in the ninth and ended up winning five to nothing. So Texas Rangers, big winners in the World Series. They get their first World Series championships. And, and I was just thinking, I, I wondered, you know, who – in the 21st century, who has been the teams that have won the World Series? Who, who do you think about? Well, you've got the Astros, the Braves won in 2021. Then you've got the Dodgers, the Nationals, the Red Sox all the way back to 2018. The Astros again in 2017. The Cubs, which was a big year for the Chicago Cubs. They finally came through and won a World Series in 2016. Then the Royals, the Giants, the Red Sox again, the Giants again, the Cardinals the Giants again, the Yankees again, the Phillies in 2008. I mean, you've got fairly large market, big name teams that are winning the World Series for the most part since 2000. And now this World Series, very interesting. The Diamondbacks and the Texas Rangers and the Rangers come out on top. So I wanted to get those couple of things from the world of sports out there. Um, I love baseball, make no mistake about that and football, so this is kind of my favorite time of year where baseball and football tend to overlap. All right, let's get into the update on the Israel-Hamas war. In testimony to Congress on Tuesday, Anthony Blinken admitted that some of the humanitarian aid in Gaza is likely to be diverted to Hamas. Now, that's um, an incredible understatement. Uh, Hamas is in control in Gaza, even though right now they're hiding from Israel, an unprecedented attack by the IDF forces. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. By the way, just a, a fascinating military strategy by IDF. I mean, they, they rolled onto the beach in Gaza. You just don't see, at least in my mind since World War II, you don't see heavy artillery and uh, tanks and armored vehicles on the beach. That's not something you see a lot, but it makes sense with Gaza because by rolling into that area, their flank is protected. And so they can go into the city, they can attack at will, and then come back to the beach where they're fairly well protected since Gaza doesn't have an air force. Um, Hamas doesn't, it's a good thing that Hamas doesn't have an air force. So the, the Israelis are there on the beach where they don't have to worry about their flank. Um, interesting political move. But this, this idea that aid going into Palestine is somehow going to actually get to the Palestinians, I, I would say the reverse of what Blinken said in his testimony. He's basically saying that we're, we're going to see that the, the bulk of this aid gets to the Palestinians 
but some, what he calls spillage, is going to happen. In other words, Hamas is going to take control of some of it. We can't deny that. I think it's the other way around. I think the spillage is likely going to go to the Palestinians, where Hamas is going to get the lion's share um, because they control that area. The only thing that would keep that from happening, you know, they're saying that Israel needs to back off in order for humanitarian aid to get to the Palestinians. I think the truth is the more Israel presses the war against Hamas, the more they keep Hamas pinned down, the more likely it is that Palestinians will take advantage of this aid that's that's flowing in. Um, Blinken said that getting aid into the hands of the Palestinians is critical to the world's continued support for Israel's military action. I mean, there's a, there's a big part of the world now, of course, already calling for Israel to back off, and a part of that is because of what's going on in Israel uh, in terms of the casualties that are taking place in Gaza. But he said if, if the humanitarian crisis continues to worsen, it'll cause more trouble for Israel from the countries that are around them. Senator Haggerty of Tennessee pushed back during, the, uh, during Blinken's testimony on the idea that aid can be delivered to Gaza and not fall into the hands of Hamas. He makes a good point right here. Every foreign aid dollar that goes into Gaza is controlled by Hamas. They either direct it, they tax it, or they divert it. They even take pipes intended for the water system for civilians and turn those into rockets that are aimed at Israel. We've seen Hamas's own videos demonstrating this. So I'm going to come back and ask you, can you guarantee that U.S. taxpayer dollars weren't used in October 7th? What, what I can guarantee is that um, we take every possible precaution to ensure that these, these uh, resources are not diverted. Okay, all right. This is every possible precaution. I think that's laudable, and it's obvious that the United States is going to do that. But Blinken knows that he can't guarantee that the bulk of this humanitarian aid is not getting into Hamas's hands. Um, I think Haggerty's statement was, was very telling. I mean, when you've got terrorist fighters who are willing to dismantle the, um, the water system to confiscate pipes, to cannibalize the pipes that actually allows water to flow to the people in Palestine and use those pipes in the making of rockets or bombs. I mean, what, what can you say about aid? You know, I've pointed out on this program many times that Israel has supplied concrete to Palestine, uh, giving the Palestinian government, which is now Hamas, access to everything that it needs to build buildings, to create infrastructure. And the infrastructure that gets created is what is estimated to be 300 miles of tunnels in a 25-mile strip. I mean, it's 25 miles. If you go from the top of Gaza to the bottom, it's 25 miles. And if you go across Gaza from the border with Israel to the sea, it's about six miles. So you've got three million people jammed in that space, and you've got a, a tunnel network. Some of those tunnels are as deep as 200 feet. I was absolutely stunned when I was reading about this. Um, and these bunker-busting bombs that Israel uses now, I mean, they can only penetrate up to about 150, 160 feet. So Hamas knows this, so they just dig a little deeper. They dig deeper, and, and they put 
the, the tunnels out of the reach of the bunker buster bombs. And so Israel has to send, they have to be trained in going into these tunnels. And they're incredibly narrow. If you've ever seen any of the tunnels that Hamas has constructed, um, you can barely move through most of the, most of the tunnels. Um, and, and Israel fights using uh, drones that can be controlled underground, even little remote control cars that you would, you know, they can put explosive devices on to run through these tunnels um, so that they can find these fighters without having to go into the tunnels and risk losing a lot of IDF forces. I mean, it's just very difficult fighting underground, as you can imagine, in these tunnels. And night vision goggles, they don't do any good. Uh, they don't work underground in the tunnels. And so it's a, it's a major challenge to try to figure out exactly how to, to rid Hamas of its number one military tool, which is the extensive underground network that they've been able to develop. In recent days, Israel has greatly stepped up its aerial and artillery bombardments and are now attacking areas occupied by civilians, in some cases without warning. Now, you, and you know, of course, this is going to cause great problems for the world community as Israel begins to back off some of its methodology of either door-knocking bombs, the, the munitions that are not strong enough to destroy a building, but it just shakes it to let the people inside know that they're about to take the building down. Uh, they're, they're not going to do this because, yes, they want civilians to get out of the way, but they've issued multiple warnings about that civilians need to flee. And if, they, if, if going into these areas where these Hamas con command and control centers are, if they tell people they're coming, yes, the civilians can get out of the way, but so can the terrorists. And so it's going to extend the war. It's going to lead to more, uh, the sacrifice of more Israeli soldiers, it's, and it's going to make the war last longer, which in the end is going to end up killing more Palestinian civilians. And so because Hamas shields their command and control, their assets with, with what they refer to in Sharia law, as we pointed out on the show before, as subjects, not civilians, not, not citizens. They don't have rights and privileges. The, the only thing they have is, is the war against Israel, and they're considered to be um, you know, expendable if the end result is the defeat of Israel. According to the Wall Street Journal, Israel has attacked has struck more than 11,000 targets with missiles, bombs, and artillery since the war with Hamas began. Now, to understand the magnitude of that attack, the last time Israel fought Hamas terrorists in Gaza, they hit 1,500 targets. This time, they've hit 11,000 in a very short period of time. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza is releasing numbers of dead and wounded. But I, I got to tell you, I'm not going to report those numbers. I mean, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to talk about them because I know that they're false. I mean, we know that Hamas. There's the ministry of uh, of, of health in Gaza. The health ministry is run by the terrorist, and so any numbers that I would give you. Uh, there, you know, there are those that are arguing. Well, these numbers have been accurate in the past. There's no way to know that at the moment uh, because they're they're going. Anything that Hamas says has to be considered propaganda in trying to turn world opinion against Israel. They know they've got an advantage with that. 
They know just as the just like the North Vietnamese knew that the U.S. media would publish reports um, that were favorable to ending the Vietnam War with with the North Vietnamese with the communist in control. Hamas understands that world opinion can be manipulated through willing accomplices in the world media that are going to report Hamas information as if it's true. You can go back and talk about the hospital, the bombing of the hospital, that we now know that the damage has already been done, but we know that there weren't 500 civilian killed, civilians killed. We know that it was, that it was people in a parking lot outside the hospital that uh, parts of a rocket that exploded prematurely fired from a terrorist group within Gaza. It was the culprit that took lives at that hospital. The hospital walls were still intact. I mean, when Israel goes in and takes out a building, the building doesn't exist. I mean, have you seen some of the pictures coming out of Gaza? I mean, there are great deep craters where buildings stood when Israel decides to take out a, bu a building. And so, anyway, the point being that Hamas uses information as propaganda. And so there's no way to believe the numbers that are coming out of there. The sheer volume of Israeli attacks, according to the Wall Street Journal, and the number of munitions dropped rivals any campaign in recent years, including the most intense phases of the U.S. bombing campaign against Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria. Now, that's according to Air Wars. It's a London-based conflict monitor. So think about that for a minute. I mean, you, you know... We, we can remember, we can go back and think about how, you know, these attacks that the United States uh, perpetrated against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, they were, they were incredible air attacks. And yet what Israel has done, and, and those attacks were over a much longer period of time, Israel in a much shorter period of time has increased, is, is attacking Hamas in uh, Gaza at a rate that's higher, much higher, than what the United States did in Syria and in Iraq. Quote, so far this is the most intense air campaign we've monitored, including the 2021 war in Gaza, U.S. campaigns against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization campaign in Libya in 2011. That's according to Emily Tripp, who's the direct director of Air Wars. Between... Okay, I got Siri trying to do all kind of stuff here. Uh, Siri just, you know, Siri's uh, a good friend, but sometimes she just talks and she just appears when I really haven't done anything to make her appear, and she decides she wants to be on the show. She needs to get her own podcast so that it's not a problem anymore. All right, between 38,200 and 44,500 buildings in the Gaza Strip have been damaged or destroyed. That's according to satellite imagery analysis between October 7th and October 29th. Uh, that's just incredible. That that represents 13 to 15.5% of the Gaza Strip's total infrastructure. And according, again, to the journal, to the Wall Street Journal, in Tuesday's attack, Israel said it used airstrikes to hit a Hamas command and tunnel network under Jabal, Jabalia, I believe that's correct, G-A-B-A-L-I-A-I-A, should be Jabalia, killing the commander who was one of the was leading some of Hamas's forces against Israel and played a pivotal role in the attack on October 7th. 
And on Wednesday, Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari said Israel understood civilians were in the area on Tuesday and could be affected, but argued that the Hamas commander, Ibrahim Bari, was a legitimate military target. Now, this, this again, in, in the rules of war, a lot of people think you can never, ever attack where civilians are present. But the truth is, the rules of war, the Geneva Convention, allows for a military engagement in civilian areas where the value of the military target, where we know that the enemy is using civilians as shields, and where the value of the military target, if, if taken out, would shorten the war or is, is great enough to warrant, because of the war, the attack on the target. And, and that's what this military commander is saying. Uh, the UN Human Rights Office said it had serious concerns about the attack on Jabalia because it could be disproportionate and amount to a war crime. Well, the UN's uh, Human Rights Office, anything with the United Nations, as far as I'm concerned, this is my opinion, it has no validity. I mean, the United Nations allows people to, uh, to be on councils and commissions that are member of terrorist states. Uh, they make no distinction between peaceful states and terrorist states. Uh, and, and because of that, anything to me coming out of the UN on this has absolutely no validity. And of course, the Security Council is not able to do anything. The United States is going to block, hopefully, continue to block efforts by the Security Council to force Israel into a ceasefire. Uh, if the UN Security Council gets around to that, you would think that the United States would block that. But of course, President Biden came out, I think it was yesterday, and said that maybe there should be a pause. Maybe there needs to be a, a temporary ceasefire in the war, um, simply because, because it would allow more humanitarian aid to get into Gaza. And Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu had something to say about that, of course. In fact, he released a statement on Monday relating to a ceasefire. Here's what he said. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Okay, it can't happen. I mean, right now, if, if the Israel were to back off, Hamas could regroup. And the ground that Israel has gained... Um, if, if, the, if the terrorists are able to not have to keep their heads down because of the amount of attacks that are coming against them, if they have time to reorganize, it'll extend the war. The best way for this war to come to an end quicker is for Israel to press its attacks and to press hard against Hamas and not give them any breathing room or give them any space. Uh, U.S. officials have been pressing uh, Israel to avoid civilian casualties, and Israel is doing that. They've they've asked what a, a a senior defense official described as tough questions about potential Israeli strikes on population centers and civilian infrastructure in Gaza. And again, if Hamas was not using these population centers um, and different areas within Gaza to house or to and to protect uh, terrorist fighters. Israel wouldn't have to do that. Um, here's a quote. We're working very, very hard to continue to make sure that our Israeli friends are prosecuting 
these operations with as much due care to minimizing civilian casualties as possible, and that work will continue. That's according to John Kirby. Now, so far, uh, John Kirby, by the way, is the National Security Council spokesman. So far, he's stood pretty firmly by Israel and made a lot of statements supporting the fact that Israel has to continue to pursue and to prosecute this war until Hamas is destroyed. Amos Yadin, who is a former, former Israeli Air Force general and head of the Israeli military intelligence, said Israel's shifting war tactics are due to the understanding following October 7 massacres that Hamas isn't interested in the welfare of its people and can't be deterred from trying to achieve its aim of destroying Israel. Quote, we're not targeting Gaza's civilians on purpose. We have obligations to defend Israeli civilians. We're in a war with the aim that the brutal massacre of October 7th will never happen again. And Israeli officials reemphasized again that Hamas fighters hide among civilians believing they won't be targeted or that if they are, the deaths of non-combatants will produce international pressure that will force them to curtail the attacks before Hamas is destroyed. And Hamas is not hiding the ball here. I mean, it's not. In fact, they came out earlier this week and said that not only will these attacks continue, the attacks against Israel continue, but they will continue over and over and over again until Israel is destroyed. Now, that's, that's what they, they, they're vowing to repeat the October 7th massacres until Israel is destroyed. This is from Philip Klein writing at National Review today. As the United Nations and a growing number of left-wing Americans call for a ceasefire in Gaza, Hamas is making it clear that they intend on repeating the kind of massacres they perpetrated on October 7th until Israel ceases to exist. In an interview on Lebanese television that was captured and translated um, on, by MEMRI Memory TV, Hamas officials, um, the well, a Hamas official, Gaza Hamad declared, we must teach Israel a lesson. We will do this again and again. Um, the Al-Qaeda flood is just the first time. There will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. After he said the occupation must come to an end, the interviewer asked him if he was referring to the Gaza Strip, which Israel withdrew from in 2005. There, there are no Israelis. There were no Israelis in Gaza when Hamas launched this attack against Israel. He said, quote, no, I'm talking about all the Palestinian lands. And when he was asked to clarify, here's the question, does that mean the annihilation of Israel? And he responded, yes, of course. So they're not hiding the ball here. They're telling everybody plainly what they intend. They intend the destruction of Israel completely. And you can't, I mean, how do you have a ceasefire when Hamas will simply, if they have the capability, if they're left with any command structure, if they're left with any military capability, once Israel, Israel withdraws, then Hamas is going to, they'll launch another attack. They're telling everybody that that's what they intend to do. The United States and other Israel Israeli allies, as we said, have, become call, have begun calling for a pause or a temporary ceasefire to get Israel to pull back on its campaign, and they're calling for an end to the blockade. And, of course, I'll let you hear what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had to say about that uh, on Monday. There, there's no way at this point 
that Israel can back off unless they want the war to go on much longer. Israeli officials said Hamas was operating one of its command and control facilities in the tunnels under uh, Jabalia. Uh, and of course, that it, it, as we said, that the only way Israel can get to them because, the, because Hamas is willing to sacrifice civilians is, is to go into those areas. They're intermingled. If, when, when, when I went over there in 2012, and I went with APAC, um, which some in the le- on the left in this country is called uh, a racist group. It's just, I mean, it's incredible. APAC is an advocacy, the largest advocacy group for Israel in the United States. And when I was on this trip in 2012, you, you have to go to Israel to fully appreciate the geography that we're talking about, the close proximity of Israel to her enemies. You know, one of the things that, you know, I, I was, we, we talked about while we, we were there um, in northern Israel, we were able to look over the Sea of Galilee and, and see the Golan Heights. And if, if there, there was a big debate about whether or not Syria could put weapons or rockets or for defensive purposes, quote, on the Golan Heights. Israel can't possibly allow Syria to do that because they would have direct access. I mean, they could fire unimpeded into Israel and kill a a large percentage of the population. The close proximity of Israel to Syria, uh, obviously Gaza is within Israel's borders, Uh, the West Bank, all of this. And then to the south, you've got Egypt, uh, you've got Jordan. Um, Israel is is closed in and surrounded by people who have committed to Israel's destruction. And there's just, there's no way until you see that, that you can understand why the Israeli Israeli military has to be the fighting force that it is, because they're fighting not to gain land or to gain ground or even for financial benefit. They're fighting for their very survival. One of the things that did happen yesterday, Egypt opened up the Rafah crossing in the south to allow some critically injured Palestinians and foreign nationals to leave Gaza. Five U.S. aid workers were among those who were able to cross into Egypt, and they're, they're the first Americans, as far as we know, that have been able to leave Gaza. It's estimated that there's still as many as 500 Americans trapped in Gaza. And I personally think there's not enough being said about that. I mean, if you've got 500 Americans in Gaza, if you've got up to 12 to 15 Americans being held hostage by Hamas, you realize the the Americans that were killed in this attack, plus those that have been taken taken hostage, this is one of the, the largest attacks and hostage situations that has been perpetrated against the United States, against its citizens. And there's just not a lot of talk about that. Now, I, I get it. Some of that gets swallowed up in the news about the war between Israel and Hamas in general. But th- this is, I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy that the United States is not doing more to get Americans out of Gaza or to free these hostages. Now, hopefully, there are things going on that we don't know about. I'd like to give um, a little bit of the, the you know, benefit of the doubt that perhaps there are Navy SEAL operations going on in Gaza where they're looking for American hostages. 
They're not just depending on the Israelis. Hopefully there's some coordination between Israeli and Israel and the United States that they're not just counting on uh, negotiations with Qatar and some of the other countries that are involved. Uh, 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 reportedly, the Rafah crossing got o- open because of the United States having conversations ongoing with Qatar, with Egypt, and even Iran was involved in this in getting the, the crossing open for those who were severely wounded. But we're not getting American citizens out. Only five, and there's only five, there's at least 500 left in Gaza. All right, I, I, I want to talk about another issue that is related that we're not hearing too much about with the, Israel's war against Hamas, and that's what's happening on the West Bank with Israeli settlers who are attacking Palestinians. Now, the problem that this creates, of course, is that it it threatens to open up the West Bank as another front in the war that Israel would have to deal with. I mean, they're already dealing with the Houthis attacking um, Israel from uh, Yemen. There were others. There were drones um, launched. And fortunately, Israel has the defensive cap- capability to take out these drones that are coming from Yemen, the missiles that are coming from Yemen, coming from Syria, uh, coming from Lebanon, coming from Hezbollah. So you've already got Israel having the, the IDF forces having to deal with attacks on major fronts, it, on multiple fronts that are, that are major areas of combat. But now you've got Israeli sit, uh, settlers who are going after Palestinians and keeping that part of the country embroiled in violence. I mean, it could lead to an uprising in the West Bank that would cause Israel to have to divert military forces. And, of course, this is something that Hamas would want. Um, here's, let me just start on this story. This is coming from the Wall Street Journal. A surge in violence has hit the West Bank since Hamas's October 7th attacks. Much of it has been directed at Palestinians. Settler attacks have increased to an average of seven attacks a day compared with three a day before October 7th, according to the United Nations. Israeli troops and armed settlers have killed at least 123 Palestinians, its humanitarian affairs agency said. One Israeli soldier was also killed during the same period. A further 1,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes in the West Bank amid settler attacks according to the UN. Now, this is, this is retaliatory. This is revenge. In fact, they're really not making many bones about it. Uh, Nadi Ram, a 42-year-old lawyer living in Esh Kadesh, an Israeli settlement overlooking um, Karasa, said that violence against the Palestinian neighbors was now justified. It was, he said, normal to want revenge uh, for the Hamas massacre and he had a Uzi submachine gun slung over his shoulder when he was saying this. So he's living in a, one of these areas that's close to the West Bank, and he says, absolutely, we have the right of revenge. In fact, quote, he said, revenge is not bad. Revenge is natural. It's okay that when somebody kills your brothers, your parents, it's okay that you're angry and you want to take revenge. He works with a pro-settler legal organization. Well, here's the thing. I mean... First of all, obviously the Bible says revenge is vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Um, we're not, and and this is this is something that they need to think about. Is if they seek revenge instead of a just war, 
revenge is never a just war. You, you don't go out and kill people, particularly people that are non-combatants that are in an area that was not involved in the original in the original war. I mean, Hamas didn't come across the border from the West Bank. Hamas came across the border from Gaza. And there's legitimate a legitimate response. It's not revenge that's motivating the IDF forces to go into Gaza. It's the defense of Israel and their right to exist. But revenge is absolutely, it, it will increase the, the possibility that the war expands. And they're not doing the IDF forces any favors by doing this. Now, violence has been going on in this area for quite some time. And, and it's, not all, it's not been just the um, Israelis or Israeli settlers that have been responsible. In fact, there's been uh, Palestinian groups that, in the same way that of Hamas in Gaza, Palestinian groups that have been harassing Israeli settlers and attacking them. And so this was going on before the Hamas attack in Gaza. Um, here's a little bit about that from the Wall Street Journal today. Before the Hamas attack and resulting Israeli military offensive in Gaza, the West Bank was already on the brink of a crisis. Armed Palestinian, Palestinian militant, militant groups, read terrorists, were on the rise, threatening the position of the Palestinian Authority, the West Bank's semi-autonomous government. So, see, this is the thing. Just like Hamas controls Gaza, in the West Bank, you've got a Palestinian Authority-led government that's tenuous at best because the Palestinians that are the terrorists living in the West Bank that have the same attitude toward Israel that Hamas has toward Israel is threatening the Palestinian government there. Um, from January 1st to October 6th this year, 237 Palestinians and 25 is Israelis were killed, according to the UN. And this is... Uh, that this is due to the friction that's being caused within the West Bank between the Palestinian Authority, who is trying to have a peaceful existence um, in, in with with Israel, and those who want, like Hamas, to see Israel destroyed. And so this is this is not helping. President Biden called them out, said, you know, this 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 doesn't need to be happening. Um, obviously, it doesn't. This is not helping. Israel's um, war effort by threatening to open another front and using revenge as motivation and Israel being the aggressor. I mean, I really believe that as long as Israel wages this war against Hamas in a way and keeps saying over and over that this is a response to the attack against us, it is a response to the fact that Hamas has promised that they're going to destroy Israel. If they keep that up, even though there's going to be pressure, even though there are going to be those in the United States and leftists around the world that are going to call for Israel to back off, I think that they will be able to continue the war and be successful. But if this thing begins to become about Israelis and the West Bank, Israeli settlers looking for revenge against, against Palestinians, that's going to turn the war or the attitude toward Israel, that's going to help the, the leftist and the people around the world that want Israel to back off of its war with Hamas. So they're not doing Israel any favors by, by doing this. I, just, I, I hope that Israeli military, Israeli police are going to be able to get this thing under control around the West Bank. 
There was a funeral procession that an Israeli general asked to be rerouted of uh, four, I think, Palestinians that were killed by Israeli settlers. They rerouted the funeral procession, and a procession, and it was attacked anyway. And two more Palestinians were killed when Israeli settlers rolled up in a, in a car and shot them during the funeral procession. And and this is the kind of thing. Uh, again, it, if they can avoid this, it it's going to keep the war from expanding, I and mean, it can help to keep the war from expanding into the West Bank. All right, uh, want to tell you just one more time, remind you today that Truth and Politics and Culture is being brought to you by the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, and Clarity have a proven track record of settling and trying cases in South Carolina. In fact, that track record extends to 25 years of experience and knowledge that has helped thousands of people just like you. If you're looking for experienced and successful personal injury uh, lawyers in South Carolina who will fight for you, you can go to McCraveyLaw.com. That's M-C-C-R-A-V-Y Law.com to find out, find out how the McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm will exceed your expectations. They know South Carolina law, and they know how to get results for you. You can call them today for a free consultation. No charge if you talk to them to get some advice to find out um, whether or not you have a case, call 833-245-6565. The number again is 833-245-6565 or go to mccraveylaw.com. McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm is ready to represent you. All right, I want to move on to another story uh, today. Rashida Tlaib was able to escape being censured, and I, it was it was because of a bunch of House Republicans, which I, I just don't, I really don't understand this. When you understand exactly what Rashida Tlaib did, it seems to me that Republicans who were pushing for her censure should have been 100% in agreement to censure her. I, I don't know that she shouldn't have been expelled from Congress. I mean, here, here's the story coming today from Daily Wire. House lawmakers blocked GOP-led resolution on Wednesday to censure Michigan Democrat Rashida Tlaib over the squad member uh, who criticized Israel over its response to the Hamas terrorist attack. The lower chamber of Cong Congress voted 228 to 186, with 23 Republicans voting with Democrats to table the resolution introduced by Georgia Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who accused Tlaib of anti-Semitic activity, sympathizing with terrorist organizations, and leading an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last month. Now, the, a lot of this language, obviously, leading an insurrection to the Capitol, is, is it's payback language because of the way that the media talks over and over again about January 6th being an insurrection, the way that they portray the protests that turned violent, that ended up with people going into the Capitol, and some of them went in with the intent of stopping the vote that was going to certify the election. I mean, there's no question about that. But to refer the, to these two things as the same is, it is, is folly. Green took to, the, to social media following the vote, listing the feckless Republicans who joined Democrats to kill the motion, and then she posted all of their names. There's 23 of them. If you want to see the 23 that uh, voted against censure, you can go to Daily Wire or any. There's several places that their names are posted. Co-sponsors of the resolution, people who wanted 
to see Rashida Tlaib censured include Alabama Representative Mike Rogers, Georgia Representative Mike Collins, Illinois Representative Mary Miller, New Jersey Rep Jeff Van Drew, uh, South Carolina's Jeff Duncan, Utah Representative Burgess Owens, and Texas Reps John Carter and Randy Weber. Uh, and of course, the, the censuring a member of Congress doesn't really care, carry any repercussions beyond a vote, but it lowers the reputation of the person who gets censured with other members of Congress. It referenced an anti-Israel protest where hundreds of demonstrators, and, and I talked about this extensively on the podcast before, hundreds of demonstrators organized by Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, swarmed the lower rotunda of the Cannon Office Building on Capitol Hill on October 18th, the protesters gathered to call for an immediate ceasefire in Israel and Gaza just days after a series of horrific attacks were perpetrated against Israel by Hamas terrorists. Over 300 individuals were arrested for illegally demonstrating at the event and three others for assault on Capitol Police. So when you hear the details of this, it does sound a lot like what happened on, on January 6th, I mean, you had people occupying the rotunda. They, they burst into the Capitol. They fought with Capitol Police, and they refused to leave because they, and they were supporting Hamas. And Rashida Tlaib, she didn't go into the Capitol. She didn't join them when they, they breached, but she did. Just in, you know, you want to accuse Donald Trump? of inciting a riot at the Capitol by speaking to a crowd, and then that crowd, after he speaks, goes to the Capitol. Now, I, I, Donald Trump actually told the people to peacefully go to the Capitol. In other words, it, it, he wanted a peaceful protest. He called for that at the end of his speech, and that gets left out of most media reports. Now, he said a lot of inflammatory things. I, I'm not saying he didn't, but he did, at the end of his speech, call for a peaceful protest. Um, and here we've got Rashida Tlaib who didn't call for anything of a peaceful protest in any of the video that I've seen of the comments that she made. And then the people that she was talking to actually went into the Capitol and over 300 of them got arrested. And the, the House can't even censure her because of 23 Republicans. Um, I, I just... Tlaib called Green's resolution unhinged, deeply Islamophobic, and attacks peaceful Jewish anti-war advocates. This is not a Rashida Tlaib is not a Jewish anti-war advocate. Rashida Tlaib is a supporter of the Palestinians to the point that she is supporting Hamas. Now she'll say that that's not the case. She's not going to admit, of course that she's supporting Hamas, but effectually, that's what she's doing. Quote, I'm proud to stand in solidarity with Jewish peace advocates calling for a ceasefire and an end to the violence, she wrote in a statement. I will not be bullied. I will not be dehumanized. I will not be silenced. I will continue to call for ceasefire for the immediate delivery of humanitarian aid and release of hostages and those arbitrarily detained and for every American to be brought home. Well, of course, she's going to say that now. I mean, that's going to be her public face until she gets in front of the group that's protesting and then goes storms into the Capitol where she clearly indicated support or condemnation of Israel 
and support for Hamas, even after the main thing that she did in that rally is even after United States intelligence agencies working along with the IDF had multiple uh, pieces of evidence to prove that the attack on the hospital was actually not an attack. It wasn't an attack at all by Israel. It was the uh, an accidental where, where you had uh, militant rockets, terrorist rockets coming from behind the hospital, and one of them misfired and landed in the parking lot. That's what caused the deaths. And she continued to refer to it as an attack by Israel. She refused to believe, and she blamed Israel for the attack, even after it was clear that that was not the case. And, if I mean, if, if that isn't spreading Hamas propaganda, um, I don't know what would be considered spreading Hamas propaganda. All right, another story today. Daily Wire is following this story. A huge caravan of about 5,000 migrants has started moving toward the U.S. on foot from Mexico's southern border. The group started making its way north on Monday, according to organizers and officials, walking in a long line along the highway. Uh, Migrants in the caravan hail from Cuba, El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, and Venezuela. That's according to one of the organizers of the march. Police escorted the migrants in Mexico at certain points, sometimes making sure they didn't block the highway, sometimes preventing them from hitching rides. Uh, They reported that they were tired of waiting for visas in the city of Tapuchula near the Guatemalan border, where Mexico's main migrant processing center is located, and waits can stretch up to months as Mexico's immigration system scrambles to process the droves of immigrants waiting at its border. I mean, this is, so 5,000. In September, we had a record of nearly 270,000 illegal crossings are, are coming in to the United States at the southern border. That was the highest monthly total ever. You had the mayor of El Paso in September he said that, that you know we've we've reached the limit of what we can we can handle. We've reached the breaking point, and he chartered five buses to take migrants to New York, Chicago, and Denver. And so that leads us to the last part of the story, which is the sanctuary um, city mayors are asking the Biden administration for five billion dollars to help them to take care of the migrants that they said and boasted that they would take care of if they were sent to their cities. You know, you can't be a sanctuary city without a plan. All of this sanctuary city talk that started a few years ago by these big city mayors was uh, was just that, talk. They knew they were thousands of miles from the border. They didn't think that they were ever going to have to deal with an immigrant, uh, uh, illegal uh, alien crossings to the point that they were going to have to take, they were actually going to have to take action on the fact that they declared themselves to be sanctuary cities. Now they want American taxpayers to pay for it. Rather than sending money to the border to fix the problem, the, these mayors want $5 billion sent to them so they can continue to care for or provide space for those who have, have made it to their city. Now, look, if you've listened to this program long enough, you know that I'm sympathetic toward the individuals that are involved here. As a believer in Jesus Christ, somebody who believes that the image of God is in everyone, we're not to be people who hate other people, 
because of the situation that they find themselves in. But at the same time, we have to support the rule of law. We need to take care of people's needs. We need to make sure that they're not sleeping outside or, or being exposed in, in some way to danger, that they're getting, that they're being fed, they're being taken care of, that, that all of them, uh, men, women, and children, are provided for in some way while all of this is sorted out. But this would not be a problem. And, I, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the $5 billion go from the federal government because the mayors of these cities are responsible for this. They're, they're part of the problem. They're in a party, the Democrat Party, that has done nothing to fix the border crisis. They, they are at least very little. Their solutions, whatever solutions they have tried to implement, have not worked. They've simply made the problem worse. And whether that's by design or whether it's just by incompetence, the end result is the same. We've got a humanitarian crisis. We've got another 5,000 right now headed for the U.S.-Mexico border in a migrant caravan. And we've got $5 billion being requested from taxpayer money to go to these, um, to, to these cities where they boasted just a few years ago, send us all of your illegal immigrants. We'll take care of them. We're going to be a sanctuary city. We'll always provide for their needs until it actually happens. And we knew then that it was political rhetoric, and now we have the evidence to back up what we knew then, is that this has always been just simply um, bloviating coming from Democrats saying to try to make a political point about the immigration crisis. It's easy to do that when you don't have illegals streaming into your city. It becomes a little bit more complicated when the illegals coming into your city is causing problems, causing people to put pressure on you as a mayor, and they want American taxpayers. American taxpayers' money, if we're going to put it somewhere, it needs to go to the border to strengthen the border to make sure that this crisis is averted, that we can gain control of the southern border. It is completely out of control. And what, what a, a mess, sending money to the mayors of these cities and instead of trying to fix the problem. I mean, you know, if you've, got, if, if you've got a leak, if a water main breaks and water starts flooding into your house, if you get a bucket and start bailing, you're never going to fix the problem. You're never, you're never going to rescue your house. You're not going to save your property. You have to go to the source and you have to cut off the water so that you can fix the problem, so that you can begin the, the cleanup process. It's the same thing with what's happening at the border. If you don't stop the crossings at the border, if illegal immigration is not stopped somehow, then all the money that we could spend in the U.S. government is never going to fix the problem because they're going to keep coming, 5,000 more headed to the border right now. Take the $5 billion and put it where it will do the most good to stop the crisis at the border. If you want to stop the humanitarian crisis, they talk about all the problems that the illegals are having coming into this country. And it, it, if you want to stop that, then you need to stop You've got to have an orderly system at the border where we have migrants coming across that we don't have legals, illegals rather, pouring across the border. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. I really appreciate you listening to the program. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, if you're listening to the podcast, please leave me a good review. 
and uh, that'll help other people find the show and they might like it too. And if you're on Facebook Live, thanks for being part of the program today. I'll be back in the morning at 7.30 and we'll do it all over again. God bless you. Have a great day.